I want to start with a question. I like questions. I think questions generates conversation. And I'm not afraid of tough questions. I think tough questions are the way in which we get to hear one another out. So I want to ask a question to start with. And the question is simply this. Do you know Jesus or do you know Jesus? Uh, this, this question will be the underlying question behind what I'd like to share with you today. And I'll explain what I mean by this in a few minutes. But first I want to tell you about a few friends of mine. I have a friend who is struggling to make ends meet. He's married and he's got uh, a couple of daughters and um, this, this struggle is real for him. I have another friend who has bipolar and is a recovering alcoholic. And um, if you know these two things at play, um, is very real for his life. And he's reminded about this every single day. I have another friend who had to come to terms with actually saying goodbye to her father, who is actually dying of cancer in his 60s. And uh, that will happen at any point now. And these are just some of the things that have happened this week. And I'm aware that throughout our world, as we, as we watch the news, as we read online what's been happening, there is plenty of other things going on. But as far as what I see around me, uh, when I'm sharing with you this morning, I am thinking about um, these friends. So last week, I began by saying that if we're going to title a series by the by uh, the suffering of God, if we're going to call a series by that name, then naturally the first questions that I need to ask is, does God suffer? And I wanted to highlight three things from the Bible. The first one is that God knew suffering before time began. This idea is found in Revelation chapter 13, where it says, the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So this is in God's mind before time begins. The second point is that suffering is never too far away from grace. And um, we reflected on 2 Timothy 1, and the words were, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And the, then the third point was, suffering draws us closer to aspects of God's character we would otherwise not know. And the reference here was Ephesians, where, where Paul is saying um, that these things are happening to the praise of His glorious grace. And so there is, however, another dimension to God's suffering that I want to explore this morning with you, and that has to do with His mission. Theologically speaking, when we're talking about God having a mission, we're talking about the story of His creation and the things that He is doing to redeem and renew what was once perfect. And so the Bible is our record of uh, God's creativity in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. But from Genesis 3, Genesis chapter 3, it captures human disobedience and rebellion against this creator, God, and the implications of our choices. The flip side, though, is that it also records his desire not to abandon or destroy his creation, but to redeem it. And he's been doing this within history through people and events that run from um, the call of Abraham in Genesis to the return of Christ. Revelation, the end of the, and the, end of the book, chapter 22. We have a, a picture culminating in God's new creation 
which is yet to come. So when we read the Bible, one of the first things we notice is that an important aspect of God's mission is the idea of sending or being sent. Some of these examples include the story of Joseph. Now, he didn't have a crash hot start, but later realized that um, God had sent him to be in a position to save the lives of of his own people in a famine. In the Bible, we also read the the story of Moses, who was sent to deliver people from oppression in Exodus. Or Elijah in the book of Kings, who was sent to influence political outcomes. Or Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who I'll talk about in just a minute, who was sent to proclaim God's word. He had this sense of calling, this sense of being sent by God. And of course, there is Jesus. Jesus, who understood himself as being sent to preach the good news. He was using the the book of Elijah, uh, sorry, the book of Isaiah to draw this this passage and and make it it his own. He was saying, I've been sent to preach good news, to proclaim freedom, to give sight for the blind, and to offer release from oppression. Jesus understood himself as being sent. The disciples were sent by Jesus to preach and show the healing power of the kingdom of God. After his resurrection, Jesus sent his followers with a mission, and the mission was to make disciples. And he said, make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey the things I've commanded. In the same way that he had been sent by his Father, he was now sending them. Paul, Barnabas, Titus, Apollos, in the New Testament, and many unnamed men and women were sent out to teach the gospel. And we'll read of these particular stories in the book of Acts. And so, Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit has sent the church to continue in the mission that began in Genesis. You and I are the church, and we have been charged, or the word is, com- is commissioned, so co-mission, this idea of partnering with God in the mission that he actually began. Co-missioned to go and tell the world about a better way of living, about doing life in a kingdom that puts Jesus as king, about the good news of his death and resurrection. Missiologist and theologian Christopher Wright puts it this way. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, for God's mission. This makes sense. I'm not really saying anything new here. If we're a Christian, we understand the implication of this. Inherently, we know this is what we're about. But what I want to ask is, to what extent? How far am I willing to go? How far are you willing to go? How far is Door of Hope Christian Church willing to go to fulfill God's mission in the world? When I read the Bible, I don't find anywhere a picture of God apologizing 
for the pain his people are enduring. He's not apologizing even now for the pain that we, his people, endure today. One of the answers why this is so can be found in Jeremiah, where actually the opposite happens. We read these words, for I, for, this is Jesus, um, God speaking, by the way, to Jeremiah, for I forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I give the one I love into the hands of his enemies. He's talking about his people. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field into a desolate wasteland. It will be made a wasteland, parched and desolate before me. The whole land would be laid waste because there is no one who cares. This is an Old Testament picture of God's pain-filled heart. And it highlights an important aspect of his suffering. Jeremiah finds that not only is God sharing in the suffering of his people, but he finds that he, the prophet, is called to share in the suffering of God who is grieved for his people. Can you see the reversal there? Jeremiah finds himself caught up into the situation of a God who is in pain, and only then does he realize the extent of the the plight of his countrymen. But it doesn't stop there, thankfully. God does something about this, and he wants to do something about what he sees, even though his people have rejected him time and time again. And still today, people reject the idea of God. So later on, we read in Jeremiah, God is saying, Is not Ephraim my dear son? Ephraim is just another name for Israel. Is Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him. What this shows us is a God who is not afraid to share in our suffering. We get that. But neither is he afraid of inviting us to share in his suffering. He's not apologizing for it. He's using it, get this, for his glory. He's using our suffering. He's using his own suffering for his glory and purposes. Let's think about that. This great, this living, this powerful, almighty God of the universe invites us to participate in his suffering in order that we may better understand the seriousness of our pain and the void that separates us from him. Which is to say, this is an, in other words, he not only is a suffering God, he is a suffering God on a mission. And so this is the one and only point I want to make today. And it builds on the previous three that I was talking about last week. And the, the point is this, God's mission to save the world involves suffering. God's mission to save the world involves suffering. And there is no better example. If you want an example, there is one great example. And that's his, God's very own humanity in our world in the life of Jesus, his very own son. In fact, we can go as far as saying that Christ learned humanhood from his suffering 
And the invitation is to now learn Christhood from our suffering. Jesus became human and therefore understood our pain. But it doesn't stop there. Their invitation then is to say, am I willing to become like Christ so that I now know what it means to follow him despite my suffering or through my suffering? So in the lead up to Easter weekend, this, this coming weekend, today's Palm Sunday. Now, uh, we, were sh- we were sort of joking about this before. When I think of Palm Sunday um, through, you know, kids' books and whatever, I don't imagine a rainy day like today. I imagine a sunny day, yeah? Palm Sunday is the day where uh, we remember the historical event where Jesus enters Jerusalem um, on, the, on the back of a donkey and people are laying um, palm branches and... Um, and cloaks and so on, and they're welcoming him as king. We read this story in Matthew 21. Actually, this story happens in all four Gospels. And there is one question that's asked, and this caught my attention, a question that actually has been asked ever since. And in verse 10 we read, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? So this question leads me back to the first question I asked at the beginning. Do you know Jesus or do you know Jesus? So in order to explain what I mean by this, I need to draw from my Spanish background. In Spanish, as well as other, other languages, I'm told, I know this is the case for French and German, there are two words that are translated into English as to know. But the way they are used in Spanish is very specific and you can't interchange them. The first word for knowing is saber. Now this has to do with knowing something. It's knowledge that you gain. It's something you know to be true based on your experience. But the second word for knowing is conocer. You don't use this as a way to talk about knowledge but to talk about knowing someone. You can't interchange those words. It would not make sense. You don't saber a friend, you conocer a friend. Does that make sense? So when I'm talking to you, um, so, so when I'm asking, do you know Jesus, or do you know Jesus, what I want you to think about is whether you know Jesus as a faith you can draw from, Um, that addresses aspects of your life? Or do you know Jesus in such a way that it compels you to surrender your life so that his name is known throughout the world? Do you know Jesus or do you know Jesus? It's like this picture of a child eager to explore For many of us, our Christian faith is in danger of becoming the thing we look at from a distance, yet we can describe very well. Yet for others, knowing Jesus has meant putting on our backpack and getting messy. If you look carefully at this picture, what I'll do after today, after this morning, is I'll post it on Door of Hope's Facebook page so you can have a closer look. But what I see in this picture is a little boy who's got his backpack on, he's even got a yarn of string, maybe to tie to tie off somewhere so that he doesn't get lost, so he can find his way back. I don't know whether you can see there's a telescope there. 
there is, there is, a, there is a globe, a spinning globe. There is a, there's a, like a toy yacht. There are things there that are inviting him to explore the world. And what is he doing? He's actually looking at the world through a TV. So does he know the world? Or does he know the world? And our faith, I think, is very much like that. One choice provides a level of safety, yeah? The other will be sure to bring pain and suffering. So what does knowing Jesus look like? That's a fair question. Tell me more about that. What would it look like if I were to see someone who's committed to knowing Jesus in this capacity? I would describe it to you simply by maturity. It looks like maturity in the life of a person who has spent time with Jesus over and over and over again. But it's not just the time, it's what happens in that time. And at Door of Hope, we've been banging on about this for a few years. This idea of 20 minutes in the chair, you've got a new bookmark there for, the, for these dates coming up. This idea of building a daily rhythm in your life to actually talk to God and to hear from God and actually process the things that he's asking you to do. And chances are, it has very little to do with your life and more to do with the lives of others. Why? Because God is your missionary God. God is sending his church into the world. We also have made it our mission to be Jesus-centered. You'll hear this word a lot, this, this, um, this play on words, Jesus-centeredness. Who do you think will reach this level of Christ-centeredness, of maturity? This is what I'm talking about, transformation, of being more like him. Who do you think it will be? The person who knows Jesus, can describe him, can go through the daily ritual somehow and not engage in the things that Jesus is inviting him to engage in? Or is it the one who knows Jesus? And by that I mean the one who is willing to suffer. It seems to me that for the sake of the world, Jesus had to learn what it meant to be mature. That's a weird thing. But if we read in Hebrews 5, maturity is connected to suffering. And we read these words, Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. The writer is talking about Jesus here. Jesus learning something. That's a strange concept. And yet what we're hearing here is just his humanity. He had to learn obedience. He had to become mature. And the way he went about this is through his suffering. Now, let me just put a little waiver here, a little flag of warning. Don't, um, we, we've heard it said that suffering is the result of unconfessed sin. I want to challenge that. In the same way, you can't say that in the same way that we can say, therefore, that I am righteous because of all the right things that I've done. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is righteous, and he makes me righteous by what he did on the cross. But Jesus is also suffering, and he invites me to suffer with him. Consider Paul's words to the Philippian church. I want to know Christ. Yes, 
to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering. Does this sound surprising? Well, it shouldn't. Jesus was very clear about what it meant to be his disciple. If you are serious about being one of his disciples, then you need to consider what it is that he is asking you to do. He said in Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will find it. Could it be that Jesus knows something about suffering that he is inviting us into? In a world where a priority is to eliminate or avoid pain and suffering as much as possible, could it be that Jesus knows a different way to live, a better way to live? What is it about God's mission through Jesus and the Holy Spirit that compels me to live counterculturally? A clue to why suffering is part of mission is found in Romans 5.3, where we read, We also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character, what does that produce? Hope. That's it. Suffering ultimately produces hope. Jesus is the source of our hope. This suffering missionary, Jesus, is the reason I can suffer and gain hope. It is not something that I conjure up myself. It is the lamb that was slain who makes this possible. And this is precisely why our vision at Door of Hope doesn't read to be a Door of Hope in a fragile and uncertain world. That's not what it says. Instead, it says um, that we want to be a door of hope through Jesus Christ in a fragile and uncertain world. Let's give credit where credit is due. But hope for who? For me? For, for my suffering? Well, I hope so. I think so. But hope for the world as well. That's his mission. And in 1 Peter 3, we read, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Someone is going to notice the pain that you have. Someone is going to notice that you are suffering somehow. And they're going to say, Why? What is this hope that you have? And Peter is saying, Be ready. Have an answer. Oh, well, I have hope because I slept really well last night. It's not that. It's not that I have finances to be able to get me through that. It's not that. It's not even that I have great friends. It's not just that. It's Jesus who suffered. That's the reason for my hope. So it is, this, is it a surprise then that God would choose to use your suffering and my suffering in order to offer hope in a fragile and uncertain world? God is in the business of redeeming people to himself. It's his mission. And he has commissioned his church. 
his disciples to embrace suffering for the sake of the world. God, the ultimate sender, sends Jesus, his son, the ultimate missionary, to suffer, to die, and subsequently become the ultimate sacrifice for the purpose of the ultimate mission, which is to redeem and renew all of creation. My friend who is struggling to ends meet and provide for his wife and two daughters is someone who knows very well what it is to wait for God. Wait on God. He has testified time and time again about God's amazing timing, especially while being a missionary in Asia for more than a decade. The same God who helped them in, is the same God So the same God who helped them then is the same God who sees their struggle now. And while here in Australia, my friend is getting to know more of Jesus. Not knowing Jesus, he's getting to know Jesus. My friend who has bipolar and is a recovering alcoholic, he's reminded about this struggle on a daily basis and yet he is married and has four great kids. He's embracing the daily challenges in the process, and in the process, getting to know more of who Jesus is to such an extent that he wants to tell others about Jesus. My friend who's had to come to terms with saying goodbye to her father, dying of cancer, has been talking about God's goodness during this hard time. The other week, her dad stood in front of his local church. They somehow prepped him well enough just so that he could go to this, um, this local church community one last Sunday. And he gave testimony of the amazing love he has for Jesus. He has discovered something that wasn't there before. And he's not a public speaker. He hates being at the front. And yet he came to the front and he testified to the love he has for Jesus. But also, you know, I thought this was great. He's actually fallen in love with his wife all over again. Those were his words. And he's telling others about what he's experiencing. He knows Jesus in a way that he didn't know before. And he's telling others about it. So let me finish with the one question that I asked as a challenge. Do you know Jesus? Or do you know Jesus? What's it going to look like in your life when you are struggling, when there's pain, when there's suffering? Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I stand before you and we're all here before you in your presence. It would be just remiss of me to pray some elaborate prayer and ignore the fact that we have people suffering right now. Lord, I I thank you that um, at the end of the day, we can toss out theology, we can toss out missiology. What we get is Jesus. I want to know that Jesus. I want to know the Jesus that is inviting me to come to him regardless of what's going on in my life or probably because of what's going on in my life. And yet I'm aware right here this morning that there are people suffering. There are people in pain. And we don't need to define suffering. We don't need to define pain. We know exactly what that is. 
and even the news this morning of Hannah Parsons. Lord, we lift her up and we lift those who are suffering and we pray that your name be glorified, that your name be honored through their pain, through their suffering right now in hospital. Lord, let your name be known in the same way that we've sung these words. May it just be more than a song. Let the church arise to share your light to the world, Lord, even if it means that we will suffer. Thank you for your mission to redeem the world. Thank you that you call me, you call us, you call this church, you call the the global church to suffer with you in order that we would be able to show that there is a God that loves them. There is a God that died, that also rose again. And there is a God who can handle suffering. Lord, may we be charged with that commission one more time to make disciples who know what suffering is and who go out and tell others about Jesus just in the same way that we are. Lord, for your glory, let discipleship rise. For your glory, let Christ-centeredness rise at Door of Hope. In Jesus' name, amen.